ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Kimberly Pierce. This episode, we are joined by the always amazing woman of classic film podcastum that makes me want to be a better podcaster, Ms. Karina Longworth. Karina, how are you? Great. How are you guys? Oh, we're great. We thank you so much for talking with us. I know last time you talked to us, we were all working from home at the beginning of this pandemic, I believe. Time has no meaning these days. Yeah, I think it was for the Polly Platt season, which came out last May, about a year ago. So it's been that long. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like a million years ago. (laughs) You have a new season. You must remember this focused all on the dueling mavens of gossip columns, Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, which is amazing. I know you've talked before about only wanting to do a season of the show when something inspires you. What inspired you to want to tell their story? It's definitely not the same thing as something like Polly Platt, where it's like, here's this person who I've always admired and wanted to find out about because there isn't very much information about them. With Luella and Hedda, I don't feel like there's a need to sort of champion them. (laughs) If anything, it's more of a need to deconstruct them and explain how they became so powerful and how their power was insidious. The real impetus to do this season was just that I needed to get a better understanding for myself as to how they were different from one another and how to differentiate these two really powerful forces in 20th century Hollywood, who I don't think I'm the only person who could sometimes mix them up or would forget which is the one that took down Charlie Chaplin and which is the one that tried to get Citizen Kane banned. I just needed to have a better understanding of them and their work myself. What I was struck by in the early episodes, The deconstruction that you start, because you're very clear about what they've done that's insidious, but then at the same time, you do such an effective job juggling these two are single mothers. Look at what these two women did as women at this time. What challenges did you find in the research process building that deconstruction? Well, I don't think it's really a research challenge. It's more about just trying to be fair. I do think that both of them were, to some extent, evil. They certainly face challenges that are worth talking about. And I think we have a tendency to veer too far on the side of just calling any woman who does anything good or independently a girl boss or celebrating female accomplishments just because they're women and they accomplish something that is or was unusual for women. And so I don't want to do that. I don't want to just blindly elevate them for overcoming challenges, but I do want to be honest about what the challenges were. I know you've talked to about this season also moving away from Hollywood and being about the discussion about American journalism and the use of the newspaper at the time. And most classic film fans know Hedda and Luella as these most feared women who could destroy careers with just a word. For you, was that what you were finding or how did you want to look at the grander notion of journalism within their power in their era? 
Well, both of them only had the power because they had platforms, right? And so in both of their cases, they were syndicated. Their power came from the breadth of syndication. The fact that they appeared in hundreds of national newspapers and at some points, thousands worldwide. And so I think it's really important to talk about how that system works and also how in both of their cases, the specific newspapers that they were tied to had this thing in common, which is that at least at their founding, if not throughout their operation, they were meant to serve the needs of a single man or a single family. And so in Luella's case, she worked for William Randall Hearst. And in Hedda's case, her home paper was the Los Angeles Times, which was under the control of the Chandler family. I sort of go into the historic corruption of the Chandler family and also the way that the Los Angeles Times was used to further their very right-wing personal politics and to sort of feed their personal finances, to sort of twist the news and twist reality to support the interests of Los Angeles's wealthy and powerful in ways that were not just classist, but most of the time very racist. Old Hollywood and classic film fans alike can think of any number of depictions of Hedda and Luella have seen in popular culture. I was wondering in terms of your research and what you've done, how you feel about how these women have been depicted in movies based on what you found in these women as women. Well, I think that's part of the problem that I was trying to combat. You know, I didn't go back and watch any of those things while I was making the series because I, I didn't want to be influenced by that. But I think one of the problems as to why even somebody like me who knows a lot about this stuff would confuse Luella and Hedda with one another is because of the fact that the depictions of both of them have just been as like these flamboyant older women who were a thorn in Hollywood's side. I mentioned in the first episode, Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, which plays on this idea that you can conflate the two of them with each other by creating these twin gossip columnists, both played by Tilda Swinton. And that feeds into this myth that they were a two-headed monster. But in fact, they're very different from one another. And the differences are some of the most surprising things that I learned in writing this season. What I also noticed too, Hedda Hopper also, if memory serves, had a career in Hollywood prior to being the person that she was. How do you look at not just necessarily Hail Caesar, other people creating their image for media, but how they created their own image for media? In your look at it, do you feel that they had control over their image or is it one of those situations where we're always talking about men, we're pushing them to go in certain directions? Hedda had much more control than Luella did, and Hedda was a lot savvier about her image. Luella honestly didn't really think about it until it was too late. Luella Parsons was somebody who started working behind the scenes in movies and then basically became a newspaper columnist around 1914, 1915. At this point where the idea of being on camera as a newspaper reporter was not prevalent. And for Hedda Hopper, she was an actress. So by the time she started working as a daily newspaper columnist in 1938, she had been in the public eye for a really long time. And she had basically spent 20 years cultivating this persona as this rich lady who wears hats. So she had a look, she had a vibe, everybody knew that. And she's basically Luella's age, but Luella was about five years older and had had always spent more time cultivating her appearance and celebrating her own appearance, and Luella hadn't. 
Luella reports suggest that she was attractive to men and enjoyed that. But by the time she was directly competing with Hedda Hopper in the late 1930s, she had, let's say, not made looking movie star glamorous a priority in her life. So suddenly there was this competitor in her field who was really trying to look as good as she could and look as much like movie stars as she could. And I think Luella felt insecure about that. And that led her to do things like crash diet. There's actually quite a bit of stuff in the season about the health problems she had from doing things like wearing corsets that were too tight or going on fad diets. A lot of the media that celebrated Hedda would talk about how great she looked. They would would never just say Hedda looks great. They would always say Hedda looks great compared to Luella because Luella looks so bad. Hedda was savvy enough to know how to control her own image and be presented the way she wanted to be presented. And Luella wasn't really able to do that in terms of her visual image, but she was able to do it in terms of her biography. In her two autobiographies, she definitely shapes and reshapes her own personal history. The way you're talking about the media comparing them to each other just makes you think they haven't really changed that much in however many years of media presentation of women have. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the media, it's just such a lazy trope, but it's easy to pit women against each other. And it's sort of easier to deal with powerful women if you can pit them against each other. And if you can sort of contextualize their desire to be powerful and successful within a catfight. I'm curious, this is one of the the hot takes of classic filmdom that people always have opinions on, especially when it comes to to Luella Parsons. But of course, you know, her name started out being synonymous with the Thomas Ince scandal and questions of whether she was on the boat or not and whether her column with Hearst was essentially placating her for not knowing, you know, or not saying what she knew. How do you look at that story? I know that that people have very strong opinions if you're in the classic film world to this day about whether that's a true thing or not. But where do you land on that subject? I I really haven't seen any evidence that Thomas Ince didn't die of acute indigestion slash a heart attack. I don't think he was shot. And, you know, I do think that it seems pretty clear that Hearst hired Luella before that. And he was promoting her as a columnist before that. So, you know, she said she wasn't on the boat. I don't know if she was on the boat, but I don't think that her support by Hearst has much, if anything, to do with Thomason's. The only thing, and I, I can't remember if it's in an episode that's already come out or if it's in one that's coming up, but there is this sort of weird thing where Hearst and Luella are kind of tied to each other and they can't like quite entangle themselves from one another. And at one point, Hearst sends a telegram or a letter to Luella that says we're both in the same boat. And so I do wonder if that is like a a veiled like (laughs) reference to like, because of this murder that we're covering up, like we can never quit each other. But that's the kind of the best and only evidence I've seen that that there might be something to that conspiracy theory. That's an think- unfortunate turn of phrase. <laughs> exactly. Well, do you think that that ties into, again, people just kind of wanting to undermine the power and the talent to an extent of these, these women, that it's easy to just kind of say, well, she obviously got that job because she, she was privy to a murder or something like that. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, 
I think that it's, again, like pretty clear that Luella had established herself before that. And if anything, if, if she got this job with Hearst through anything nefarious, I think it's because Marion Davies understood how she could manipulate Luella. And that was valuable to hers. But I think that's much more likely as sort of behind the scenes activity than the Insta. What did your research process look like for this season? Because I know you said for the Polly Platt season, it was talking to lots of interviews. How did you approach this season where we have so few people left? So, yeah, there's, there's, there's really only one interview. And I just talked to somebody who had done more research than I could possibly do about Sheila Graham. So that comes up later in the season. But, you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the podcast in 2021 last summer around August and September of 2020. And so I really didn't know when libraries were going to open up. I didn't really know what travel was going to be like. And so I decided that what I had to do for 2021 was just pick topics that I felt reasonably sure I could research at home by buying books on the internet, using resources like newspapers.com. So that was one reason why I thought that Luella and Hedda would be a good season to do because, first of all, there's a lot of available resources about them. Yeah, all their columns are available. And then there's also this other layer to the season, which is about the history of newspapers and the history of American journalism and tabloid journalism. And there's a lot of resources about that. So yeah, I mean, it really, this season is just based quite a bit on books and newspaper and magazine articles that are available on the internet. I know that we've talked on the podcast about classic film, especially last year being kind of a a salve of comfort and, and happiness in a world that had been increasingly turned upside down. You know, and I know I'd had friends who said that, that having, you must remember this, acted similarly to them in terms of providing. I was going to say, I mean, is, A, is that weird for you to, to hear that during a pandemic, you know, your, your podcast had such an impact? And how do you look at the power just of this time period to create comfort and that, that loving sense of nostalgia in the year that is, that was 2020? It's really nice to hear that people, you know, would, would feel that way about the podcast. You know, it was very tricky releasing the Polly Platt season last May. Like, it, it didn't feel like the focus of the culture was on anything that had anything to do with that season, not just because of the pandemic, but because of sort of the growing awareness of, of racial tension. And, I, you know, and also I think that we have kind of a, an increasing conversation about class in this country. And because of the increasing conversations about class and race, I think conversations about gender and sexuality have kind of taken a maybe third and fourth tier to that. And so, you know, Polly's story is ultimately the story of, of a, an overlooked woman and the story of misogyny in Hollywood. And so I felt like, you know, is this really the right time to be releasing this? Well, it's too late <laughs> because once you, with my podcast, it's like, once you set a date, you set it for release, you said it months in advance because there's only a certain number of episodes per year. And so you have to like kind of set the ads way in advance. So yeah, it just, it didn't feel like it was the best time to release it. And I think that what ended up happening was that because I didn't make new episodes for a full year over the course of the year, people found it. And so the response to it has been, you know, ultimately really satisfying and really positive. In terms of just, 
you know, looking at the past during difficult times. I think people have always done that. I mean, you can think even about like, you know, periods in, in American culture where there have been traumatic events like wars, people tend to afterwards look towards more traditional fashions or revert to more conservative politics. So I think that's, that makes sense. And I, I mean, I know for me, I used the many, 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 many nights at home <laughs> to kind of watch a lot of things that I had never seen before. And for me, it wasn't so much the, you know, the 1930s, 40s, 50s. It was more movies from the 80s and 90s that I had never seen before. That felt more comforting to me. When you also got to be on The Simpsons last year, too. I mean, <laughs> we don't get a lot of people on the podcast that have been on The Simpsons. So I feel like I have to ask about, you know, was that odd to be now you're ubiquitous with this, <laughs> with one of the longest running animated shows in history? Yeah, that was a huge surprise. You know, they didn't tell me that that was going to happen or anything and until, and I, I honestly, I wouldn't have known unless one of the people who worked on the show, like he tweeted about it and he added me in the tweet. So yeah, that's how I found out. And yeah, it's absolutely an honor. And, and also it's like, it's, it's funny to be in that specific situation. Like if people haven't seen it, there's like a scene on a Simpsons episode where they go to a podcaster's bar. And I mean, I would have to say that going to a podcaster's bar in real life would be my nightmare. But at the time when that episode came out, I hadn't been to any kind of bar in, you know, nine, 10 months. And so I, I was like, wow, like at least cartoon me is <laughs> feeling some kind of camaraderie and community. So uh, going back to you said you were watching a lot of you know movies from the 80s and 90s. Is there a movie, I mean, any era, any time period that you think of, it doesn't get the love it deserves. You feel is overshadowed and you wish more people would take a look at. Oh, wow. I don't think I could answer that off the cuff. You know, there's so many things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, to go to go off of that, you know, I know that, you know, one of the first books I, I read when I moved to Los Angeles was your, your book about Howard Hughes, ironically okay. enough. I, and I know that that was a big endeavor for you to, to actually transition into to working on that. Is there a desire to, to go back to doing another book at, at some point, or is that still a ways? Well, you know, that, that wasn't my first book, but I tried to do Polly Platt as a book before I did it as a podcast right. season, and my agent was very negative about it. And then after I did it as a podcast season, I fired that agent and tried to, get a new, <laughs> tried to get a new book agent. But at that point, you know, the feeling was like, well, you should have done this as a book instead of a podcast season, but now you've done it as a podcast season. You can't do it as a book. Um, I still don't have a book agent. You know, I kind of go back and forth. I mean, I feel like right now I would be, I have a couple of ideas and I would be interested in writing a book, but if I was to do it, I would just quit doing the podcast while I was doing it. And so that's the thing that nobody wants because yeah. no, nobody wants to buy a book from somebody who doesn't have like a media profile. And I feel like in order to write a book, what I'd want to do is just go off the internet for a year and write the book. So it's sort of this catch 22 and I don't, I feel very disconnected from the literary world living in Los Angeles. And so I just don't know that I'm really primed for success in that world. It's interesting. I've talked to other authors, too, that say that the, the literary world, when it comes to specifically old Hollywood, when we've talked about this, has just gotten smaller. You know, if, if you're not writing about Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn, somebody that, you know, millions of people are just going to know off the face of it 
then it's incredibly hard to get published or get in the room at all. But then if you want to write something different about something that maybe a million people don't know, but a couple thousand, you know, well, it's, it's a tough sell. So it often feels like the Hollywood world of book writing is just getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of good stuff out there and there are a lot of good options, but it's just oh, yeah. on, on like a mass level. I mean, because my book agent was like, well, nobody's ever heard of Polly Platt and nothing that bad happened to her, meaning she wasn't raped by a studio <laughs> executive. So you'll never be able to sell this to a mass market publisher, maybe a university press. And the way he talked about that was as though writing a book for a university press is like the worst thing. And I don't think it would be a bad thing at all, but an agent isn't going to help you get that deal because there's no money in it for the agent. So it's just a question of like trying to figure out what you feel like your labor is worth, I think. And I, like I, as I said, I wouldn't mind writing a book for a university press at all, but I would have to think about how long it would take me to do it and how much they were paying and like how I would fit it in with other things I'm doing. I don't know if you'd be able to answer it without spoiling any of the ideas that you have, but if money and time was no object, is there, and you had carte blanche to write about, you know, whoever, whatever, is there something that you, you'd love to do down the line? I know when I talked to Scott Iman, he had talked about wanting to do an Errol Flynn book, but he said no one wanted to read that. And I was like, I I do. I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I want that book right now. But is there, is there one for you? Well, I, so I still feel like Polly Platt's memoir should get published in some form. Yes. Um, but, you know, we'll see about that. We're working on it as a TV adaptation right now. And then I do have two ideas. One is for a book of sort of more like reported essays. And then the other is about somebody who I think has been pretty much forgotten, who was a singer and a socialite. And there's three books written about her, but two of them are entirely about this. She was accused of murdering her first husband and ultimately acquitted. But two of the three books are entirely about that. And what's interesting to me is that she, that happened when she was in her late twenties and she lived another, I think 45 years. And over the course of the next 45 years, she had like a strange, like quasi-sexual relationship with Montgomery Clift. And she like inspired Paul and Jane Bowles. And she, she was white, but she sort of developed this career singing like African-American folk songs in the 1950s. And so I just think there's a lot to say about her, but I don't know if there are enough resources to convince someone that there's a reason to write a new biography. I'd be all for you writing about Libby Holman. Mm. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) I, I need, again, much like I told Scott Iman, I need that book tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I, I would be the first person to read that. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if Scott Iman can't sell a book about Earl Flynn, I don't think I have any shot selling any book yeah. at all. But, he, but I'm, he's, you know, I'm always surprised when I see like when movie books do make the bestseller list and what they are, like this new book about Midnight Cowboy. Oh, if yeah. If you want to read that, you know, maybe we all have a chance. Exactly. I know Scott had said, yeah, Errol Flynn and Joan Crawford. And I was like, 
I need I need those now because why do we not have those? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say with Joan Crawford, the market's pretty saturated. There's a lot of good books about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the reason I do one about Errol Flynn is because so much of the writing about him is disputed. And, you know, there's a, I think there's a need for a definitive biography. Okay. Well, I'm telling, I'm, te- I'm emailing Scott after this and telling him that he, he gets your endorsement, but he needs to do it now. He needs to do All it. Right. <laughs> I still haven't had time to read his Cary Grant book, but. It's great. It's really good. That was one of my pandemic reads. So. <laughs> I'm curious if, so if money's no option, you know, you had your way, you know, going back through the research. Is there a season, if you must remember this, that you would, if you could and had the sponsorship and everything came together, that you would tackle a second season on that you would love to extend and do more with? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I feel like my seasons are pretty comprehensive. Yeah, I don't think so. I think there's so much, I mean, in terms of the show also, I think not necessarily defining you know, concepts, but really already extending them. You know, I know everybody cite Manson and the, the Jane Fonda season. So, I, you know, it's it's amazing to kind of build off of that already when the, there's so much out there. The amount of research that I, I know goes into your, your shows just boggles my mind. That's, that's the dream one day that we'll have the ability to have a team of researchers help us do our show because I'm always remembering stuff after we record. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't have a team of researchers. I, I have people who can do things for me like scan a document or like hmm. transcribe an interview. But see, um, I just I, I would love myself. I would love that. I need, yeah, <laughs> I'm like I, we always joke on the show about, you know, I just I'm like I need somebody that can edit exactly the way I'm thinking mm-hmm. without me having to tell them. And then I would feel like I, I just want to be telepathically connected to somebody. Yeah, That's- <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. Right. Exactly. I know you You part of your your Patreon, too, is also kind of sharing the stuff you're watching, stuff you're reading, you know, things like that for for you. I know people listening to our episodes are going to be asking, what's, what's Karina watching? What's, what should I be watching? Is there, <laughs> is there a movie that comes up to you, you know, that you, you enjoyed over the last couple of months, a year or so that, that you would love that sticks with you that people should be looking to watch in the classic film world? So I have to be honest that over the past couple of months, I've been really, really busy trying to finish this podcast season and then this oh, yeah. project that I'm working on. And so... At the end of the day, I don't really, I'm just finding myself, I don't really have a lot of attention span for watching or reading. I just kind of want to go to bed. But there is, you know, this season of the podcast is, is mostly about media and celebrity more than specific movies. But there's one episode that is about Lella's daughter, Harriet Parsons, who was a film producer. And in watching that, you know, right in writing that episode, I watched some of her films, which are, you know, for the most part, very good. And I discovered a film I had never seen before, which I, I want people to see, which is called Night Song. And it's starring Merle, Merle Oberon as a socialite <sighs> who falls in love with a blind piano player and then pretend, has to pretend that she's blind so that he doesn't get freaked out, basically. And it's really, really great. And it's, very, it's easily available. So I would love it if people watch that. And I'll <sighs> definitely be talking about it in episode five of this season. I'm going to be watching that ASAP. You have me a Merle <laughs> Oberon and, and blindness. 
which is always a great genre. You know, I think the last question I I wanted to throw out, you know, so much of of your work on You Must Remember This has been, whether it's this season or Polly Platt, just looking at women in this industry and the ways that not necessarily, I hate the term used and abused, but just the way they've been kind of undermined and underestimated. You know, for you, how has it been to not just tell Polly Platt's story, but also Hedda and Luella's as we are looking back at, you know, Britney Spears or other women in the industry that we're talking about, like maybe we did them dirty when that happened and we're having these kind of uh, reconciling type of moments. How do you, how do you look at doing these, these projects as we are discussing those things now? Well, like I say, I don't want to, I don't want to have too much empathy for Luella and Hedda, but (laughs) I just, I want to have the appropriate amount, but Yeah, I've always felt like, you know, the tagline of the podcast is this secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. And for me, this secret history part is sort of like this ability that we have from the future to read between the lines of the past and to understand the past in a way that people weren't able to understand it while they were living through it and to kind of see things from different perspectives. And so for me, a lot of the time and a lot of the seasons, the secret history part is empathizing with the woman or empathizing with, you know, the queer person or whatever it is, and just trying to like really figure out what it would have felt like to be that person in that time, facing those circumstances from what we understand from today. Perfect. Well, Karina, it's always great to get to sit down and talk with you just in general. Where can fans get in touch with you online, listen to the episode, feel free to throw out anything they should know about. So you can find You Must Remember This at youmustrememberthispodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Remember This Pod on Twitter. And there's an account for the podcast on Instagram and Facebook as well. And then I'm on Twitter at Karina Longworth. I am always happy that the woman who shares the same initials as me uh, wants to hang out and, and chat classic films. Karina, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Here- that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can find Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts as well. We are on Apple Podcasts. Help us out and leave us a rating and review. We are on Spotify, Audible. I didn't know we were on Audible, but we are. We are everywhere. So uh, be sure to listen however you listen. You can always find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Kim, where are you and where is our website? You can find me most often at our website, journeysinclassicfilm.com. I have lots of reviews, interviews, random video goodness, all hitting the website. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at kpierce624. And we are also on Instagram and Letterboxd as well. If you search Ticklish Biz, you will find us there. Please remember, we are inching ever closer to giving away our massive prize pack if we hit a 1,000 followers on Twitter or Instagram, or Twitter is at ticklish underscore biz. You can possibly win a full set of TCM host pins made by Kate Gabrielle, a copy of Ruta Lee's biography, all sorts of stuff. We, we have a lot to give away. So if we hit a thousand followers on either Twitter or Instagram, we will make that giveaway available to the masses. And as always, feel free to help support us with your money by heading over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We do exclusive merchandise. We give away DVDs and Blu-rays regularly. 
And we have two bonus shows based on the True Podcast with William Bibiani and double features with Adam Kautzers. You can find out more at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We will be back next time. Till then. <laughs>